0: Hey, good morning. How we doing? Thank you guys for braving the elements and getting here to worship with us this morning. Um, Welcome to 2022. Are are, are you excited about the new year? Okay, truth moment. Are you excited about the new year? Just glad to be done with the old year. It's kind of a little bit of both, isn't it? So as we kick off 2022, I was thinking uh, back kind of over other you know, first-of-the-year messages that we've had at this church. Often we've used the first Sunday of the year as kind of a vision Sunday, praying and and, and talking to you guys about things that we want to see God accomplish in our churches or through our church. And um, it's interesting. I was thinking back to 2014, and I remember I was standing in Spring Lake at that campus, and I was like, we're praying that God would allow us to plant some churches The only problem is we didn't really know how to do that. We didn't know where the opportunities would be. But I remember boldly asking that that would be something that the Lord would allow us to do. We always wanted to be a church that planted other churches. And it was just about three or four months later that we were made aware of some opportunities in Kenya to partner with a pastor that was there, and we would end up planting two churches in Kenya, one in Busia near Uganda and one in um, Lamoru near Nairobi. An opportunity came that summer for us to plant in North Muskegon. A building became available. We met with the elders there, and we saw God work there. But it's interesting, as I look back in 2014, that first Sunday, we had a new guy on staff that day. His name was Eric Klingel. We hired him to run our 20s ministry, and neither Eric nor I would have ever thought that day when we were playing about planting a church that he would be planting a church five years later in Fremont. And so we've seen God faithful to many of the things that we've cried out and said, hey, these are things that we would like to see you do. In 2017, we were meeting at Spring Lake and three services were packed and we had a fourth service going on back in international aid and we made the prayer request, maybe God would allow us to plant south of the bridge locally. Within 30 days, one of our pastors, Dan Turner at the time, had reached out to um, a church in Granville about this location A deal came about in 30 days. It came about so quick that people in our church were like, ah, you already knew about that. That was a setup. No, we didn't know at the beginning of 2017, but that was something that we prayed for and we saw God do it. So I'm sitting here as we go into 2022 saying, so what is the vision? What are we hoping to see God accomplish over the course of the next year in our church? There's a part of me that wants to say, I just want normal after the last two years. But actually, I think our vision's a little bit bigger than that. Maybe some of you have been observant. Have you kind of noticed? Has there been a thing? I see it on the back screen. I don't know if it's here. We're starting a new series today called Ephesians. Okay, we're going to spend from now until Easter in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is one of my favorite books to teach through. We're going to go through it verse by verse. So if you've got your Bibles, why don't you grab them and turn to Acts 19. Okay, because that just seemed to be a really, really good place to start this series. But in Acts 19, we're going to be looking primarily at the first 20 verses. It's the story of Paul in emphasis establishing this church. In, In this passage, in the last verse, in verse 20, is what I think makes a really good vision verse for our church in 2022. It says in Acts 19, 20, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. I'll be honest, that's what I want for our church. That's what I want to see happen in my family and the life of my kids and in my grandkids. That's something I need in my life. To see the word of the Lord increase and prevail mightily. It's, it's interesting as you look at verse 20, the first word is so. Other translations say in light of, therefore, because of. And, and there's a reason that the word of the Lord increased and prevailed mightily. It's going to be described in the first 19 verses. So we're going to be looking this morning very, very simply what are the things that cause the word of God to increase? What causes it to prevail? What, what are the things that trigger this? It's a simple message. It's just this, four signs that the gospel is prevailing. We're going to pick it up in verse 1, Acts 19. Four signs the gospel is prevailing. Here's number one. Jesus is central. Jesus is central. Acts 19 verse 1, it says this, and it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. Now at first reading, it's kind of like, and that just kind of happened. It just kind of came about. It wasn't really planned. It just happened. Uh, That couldn't be farther from the truth. Paul is starting at the beginning of Acts 19, his third missionary journey. On his second missionary journey, that concludes in Acts 18, Paul ends up near the end of that journey in Ephesus. He spends a little bit of time there. The people there beg him to stay longer, but he can't. He returns. So in Acts 19, Paul is actually starting his third missionary journey, and he goes right to Ephesus. And Paul will spend three years in Ephesus, the longest time he spends in any city where he's planting a church. And please hear me, Paul's there intentionally. He's on mission. Paul is planting churches in major cities up and down the coast of Asia Minor, influential cities with an eye with the goal of eventually getting towards Rome, believing that if he puts churches in major cities, it will help proclaim and spread the gospel. And Ephesus was one of those cities. It was a powerful city. Ephesus had kind of as its center what is considered one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. It had a um, temple to the goddess of Artemis one of the seven natural wonders of the world. This was an influential city. So Paul is there. He's willing to spend some time there. He's on mission. As I was thinking about it, I am thinking, so as a church, what's our mission? What's, personally, what's my mission? As we start 2022, are we even on mission? See, Paul had a goal. Every move that he made was based off the mission that he had set to proclaim the gospel. The big question this morning, if you're keeping notes, is simply this. Who is at the center of your resolutions? Who is at the center of your resolutions? You guys got some New Year's resolutions that you've made? Maybe yes, maybe no. Anybody here make any resolutions about getting in better shape or getting healthier? Any of you guys on that thing? New gym memberships that you'll forget about by about March. See, see we make resolutions, and, and I'm just going to tell you, I think this year is the best year ever to make resolutions, and here's why. Because New Year's starts on a Saturday. So you don't have to do anything. Like if you're going to do push-ups and sit-ups, you're not going to start those on Saturday. That's a holiday. That would be crazy. And then Sunday's the next day, and that's the Sabbath. It's a day of rest. You're not going to start then. So you get two free days before you have to do anything, and you're not even off course. This is awesome. But as we think about the things, as we look forward, maybe it's in 2022, maybe it's in the upcoming months or even the upcoming years, what are our goals? What are our ambitions? What are the things that we want to see happen in our lives? And if we'll honestly examine them, if we'll see what our resolutions or our ambitions or our goals are, I think it becomes fairly apparent to us very quickly who's at the center of those resolutions. Are we on mission for ourselves or are we on mission for God? So the big question this morning is who is at the center of your resolutions? Look at the end of verse 1. It says, when Paul got to Ephesus, he found some disciples. In verse 2, Paul said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Verse 3, and Paul says, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Verse 4, and Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Again, four signs the gospel is prevailing. The first point is this, Jesus is central. Jesus is central. Paul shows up in Ephesus, we read at the end of Acts 18 that Paul had been there for a little while, he leaves, and a man by the name of Apollos has been preaching and arguing in Ephesus. And Apollos is a skilled teacher, he's a skilled debater, and he understands that Jesus is the fulfillment, he is the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament. But we're told in Acts 18.25 that he, speaking of Apollos, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. So as the gospel was going forth, Apollos had a piece of the gospel. He didn't have the whole gospel. He understood who Jesus was historically, and he understood that we had a need to repent. We had a sin problem. What he didn't fully understand was the remedy and how Jesus being the Messiah connected to our sin problem, that he was the remedy that God provided to deal with our sin. And we're told at the end of Acts 25 that God uses two people, Aquila and Priscilla, to, to educate Apollos, to give him a better understanding of the gospel. But when Paul shows up, there's people that have heard Apollos teach, and all they understand is repentance. They don't understand Jesus is the remedy. And I would just argue that any preaching that doesn't focus both on our need for a Savior and then Jesus has God's provision, has our Savior, it's not the gospel. It falls short. Churches can get so easily distracted. We can do a lot of good things. We can plant other churches. We can build orphanages and care for orphans in Nepal. And we can be all about fighting social injustice and whatever our cause may be, to evaluate this church, is Jesus central? Is he the main thing? Is he the focal point of what we do? Last week, uh, we had our granddaughters up during the holiday. Kels two older daughters, Ashley and Nora, and I was out riding around in the woods. We were looking for deer. And I'd given uh, Ashley and Nora a set of binoculars, and as I was driving, I'm like, hey, look! you look this side, you look this side. Let's see if we can find any deer. And and as we drove, I'm like, well, there's some deer, and there's some deer. And they're like, where? We don't see them. And I'm like, I'm 57 years old with bad eyes. I'm spotting these deer all over the place. How in the world are these girls not seeing them through binoculars? (laughs) And then it crossed my mind. I never taught them how to focus the binoculars. So I had to pause. I'm like, hey, take off your mitten. You see on the top of the binoculars, there's this little dial. Dial it backwards and forwards. Like focus on a tree and then dial it. They're like, oh, everything comes into focus. I'm like, exactly. See, see if you don't focus, if your focal point isn't on Jesus, you really You're going to miss it. I've talked to many people in the time that I've been at this church. They'll come and something in their life is in crisis. Maybe it's a relationship with their kids. Maybe it's a relationship with their spouse or financial issues. Whatever those things may be. And they want to talk to a pastor because they're in desperate need of relief. And we'll begin to counsel and I can give maybe some practical counsel on how to communicate better or deal with addictions, whatever the issue might be. But here's the truth. You're never going to see life transformation. You're never going to see huge change until that person is willing to make Jesus the focal point, the thesis statement of their lives. If you want to see the gospel increase and prevail mightily, first question, is Jesus central in your life? Here's the second thing. Hopefully you'll see this in the text as well. When the gospel is prevailing, lives are transformed. Look at verse 6. It says this, And when Paul had laid his hands on them, these these, these men who only knew the baptism of John, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. Now, We've spoken directly as a church, we did it during our study in Corinthians, we've got it up on our website as part of our doctrinal statements, our position as a church on what some refer to as the sign gifts, the ability to speak in tongues, to prophesy and to heal. And and that's not the focus of my message this morning. What, What I would remind you of is that the book of Acts is descriptive, it is a historical book, it is not prescriptive. And as the gospel went forward in the early church, it was accompanied by miraculous signs that would give validity. As the gospel went into a new region, that it was authentic, that it was true. Very similar to Jesus' ministry, that Jesus would go perform miracles that would give validity that he was the Messiah. The only point I want to make this morning, I'm I'm not looking to focus on the sign gifts, the only point that I want to make this morning is simply this. When the gospel is prevailing, lives are transformed. You you will see a change. You will see a difference. And that has been the history of our church. We have seen marriages restored. We have seen addictions and people freed from those things. We have seen transformation after transformation, and we want to see more. That's our prayer in 2022, that lives would be transformed. Because when the gospel is prevailing, Lives are transformed. You're going to see that throughout the verses that we look at this morning. I don't want to sit on this point because it kind of is a piece of everything you're going to see throughout the chapter. But here's what I would say. When the gospel is prevailing lives are transformed. That is the reason, or a reason, why we gather as a church. The primary reason we gather as a church, to worship and to lift high the name of Jesus. But the the mission of the church is to make disciples. And in making disciples, that means you're going to see life transformation. There are some, I've talked to uh, people in our church, I've talked to people outside our church, I've talked to secular psychologists, there are many people that believe that people really can't change. All you can do is take them and maybe shift them a couple degrees this way or that way. And here's what I'm going to tell you I firmly believe that because of the power of the Holy Spirit, people's lives can be transformed. If I don't believe that, if we don't believe that as a church, what are we doing here? When the gospel prevails, lives are transformed. Here's a third point I'm going to park here for a little bit. It's this Four signs the gospel is prevailing. Jesus is central, lives are transformed opposition is present. Look at verse 8. It says this, And Paul entered the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Now now there's one word, if you've got a pen with you, if you've got your Bibles open, circle the word boldly. If you're following along with the phone, like, I I can't help you. Okay, just just know that the key word in this verse is boldly. Why does Paul have to proclaim the word boldly? boldly. Why is that the descriptor? Well, look at verse 9. It says this, But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. So Paul gets to Ephesus, he begins to reason with the Jews in the synagogue. He got there in verse 1, and by verse 9, Opposition. He's in essence kicked out of the synagogue and he goes into a different hall, a public hall, and begins to reason to a Gentile audience. If you want to see the word prevail mightily, it's going to require some boldness because opposition is coming. Again, Acts 19 is the beginning of Paul's third missionary journey. If I took you back to Acts 16, 17, and 18, you would see Paul's second missionary journey. Paul had gone on a first, ministry, uh, first missionary journey. His partner on that journey was a guy by the name of Barnabas. At the start of their second missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas get in a fight, an argument. The text actually says a sharp disagreement. And the issue is John Mark. John Mark had bailed on them midway through the first missionary journey. And as the second missionary journey starts, Barnabas is like, we are so bringing John Mark. And Paul's like, that kid ain't coming with And the disagreement is so sharp that they separate over it. Just understand, the second missionary journey, before it begins, there's conflict amongst the partners of the first. So Barnabas goes off with John Mark, Paul takes a guy by the name of Silas, and later Timothy will join them, and off they go on their second missionary journey. It's recorded in Acts 16 through 18. It's interesting, if we were to take time to study it, what you would see is in chapter 16, Paul goes to Philippi. And in Philippi, he's thrown in prison. Conflict. He goes from Philippi. His next stop is Thessalonica. When he gets to Thessalonica, guess what? Conflict. It says in Acts 17, verse 5, the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. They set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason. That's where they believed the disciples believe, were staying, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And they go on in verse 6 to say, these men have turned the world upside down, and now they've come here also. Because the conflict is so heated, the disciples say, Paul, you need to get out of here. And he goes to the next city, which is Berea. And we're told in Berea, while Paul was there, verse 13 of Acts 17, but when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Conflict. So Paul goes to Athens. When he gets to Athens, Acts 17, 32, when the people of Athens heard of the resurrection of the dead. Some of them mocked him, so he headed to Corinth. And there they opposed and vilified him. They reviled him. And Acts 18.12 says they formed an attack on Paul, brought him before a tribunal. You guys seeing a pattern here? Everywhere Paul goes, he's on mission to advance the gospel. And everywhere the gospel advances, Paul sees conflict. Here's the problem. None of us like conflict. No one in this room looks forward to conflict. Some of us may handle it better than others, but the truth is, conflict is something we would prefer to avoid. And in my time as pastor here, I have often taught things like um, blessing follows obedience or choose to sin, choose to suffer. And we teach those phrases, hopefully they stick in your memory, because biblically they're true. I can prove them. A few weeks ago when Calvin was preaching and he was preaching through Advent, he referred us to Galatians 6, verses 7, 8, and 9. And they say, don't be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that he will also reap. Choose to sin, choose to suffer. Blessing follows obedience. It goes on in verse 9 and says, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in season we will reap if we do not give up. Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. It tells us at the end of verse 3, in all that he does he prospers. But then in Psalm 1 verse 4 it says, for the wicked it isn't so. They're like the chaff that the wind drives away. And then verse 6 says, but the way of the wicked will perish. Back in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, before Israel enters the land of Canaan, Moses calls an assembly. And there's chapters recorded where Moses is instructing the people, when you enter the land, if you are obedient, God will bless you. But if you choose to sin, if you choose to rebel, he's going to curse you. It's called the blessings and the curses. So this idea that blessing follows obedience and choose to sin, choose to suffer. It's biblically true, but here's the problem. We start to take that, and it takes on this kind of prosperity bend that tells us the follower of God, if he is really faithful, if he is really an obedient follower of God, his life's going to be smooth sailing. No conflict, good health, enough money, whatever it is. And we believe that obedience is going to lead us to an easy life, and I just ask you to compare that to the direct teachings of Jesus, and what we see is true in every man and every woman who God chose to use in the Old and New Testament. Jesus taught in John 16, 33, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. John 15, he says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. See, none of us like conflict. And I think when we find ourselves in conflict, I do think it's healthy to ask ourselves some questions. Like, if we're honest, what's the source of our conflict? Because quite honestly, it's not always faithful obedience. Sometimes we're just jerks, right? Okay, wives, Moment of honesty here. Have you ever found yourself in marital conflict with your husband because he's chosen to be a jerk? Like, just raise your hand. No, I'm teasing. Don't do that. You're sitting next to your husband. Okay? Some of you are really quick. I couldn't even stop you. Um, I can give you examples over the holidays where Kristen and I, there was some conflict in our relationship because I chose to be a jerk. Time won't allow, but I'd love to do that, but I can't this morning, Okay? Sometimes you can cause conflict by being just a jerk. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, believing that being obedient will mean that you, know you don't have any relational conflict, the gospel's an offense. It just isn't true. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you want to avoid conflict, let me give you some advice, some ways that you can do that. Here's one. Don't be bold. Keep your faith to yourself. Make your relationship with Jesus just a you thing. Please don't tell anyone else about their need for a Savior. That'll do it. Here's another way as a follower of Jesus that you can avoid conflict. Don't see, well, you can see a little transformation in your life, just don't see a lot. See, if you have a lot of transformation, that's going to make you stand out. That's going to create opposition. Keep your transformation limited. Just don't be bold. I would argue Quite honestly, if you want to avoid conflict, there's better religions to choose than Christianity. Be a universalist. Believe in everything. Nobody gets mad at them. Be a secular humanist. Believe what the rest of our culture believes. You won't have conflict anywhere. But as a follower of Jesus, don't be thrown when you see opposition or conflict in your life because wherever the gospel is prevailing, there's going to be conflict I won't take the time, I'm just going to glance at it, but if you were to read through the end of the chapter, verses 21 through 41, that's uh, all it is is a narrative describing the conflict that occurs when the church is planted at Ephesus. I'll highlight a couple things. Verse 23 says, about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. I think when it says no little disturbance, you could translate that a big disturbance. Big problems, big conflict. And there were some men that were concerned that as the gospel prevailed that it would affect negatively their business of selling idols. So they made accusations and insinuations against the disciples. And what they did is they got the city all agitated. The city formed a mob. We read in verse 28 that the mob was enraged and crying out. They gathered in what the text says is a theater. It's actually an amphitheater. Seated 24,000 people. Verse 29, the mob is confused. In verse 30, they're aggressive, they're dangerous. I love verse 32. Here's how the mob is described. Now, now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them didn't know why they'd come together. Sounds awesome, doesn't it? Just a mob mentality is formed. It says in verse 33, Alexander, one of the followers of Jesus there, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. No no ability for the disciples to even defend themselves against the false accusations in the face of a mob. And as I read through these verses, I just think it's interesting. 2,000 years ago, mobs formed in theaters. I don't think that happens anymore. I actually think mobs form on social media. And we live in a culture where if you disagree with the worldview of our culture, they will bully, they will cancel, and there's no defending yourself in that context. Please hear me. As a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are going to be bold in your stance for the gospel, don't be surprised when you're faced with opposition. But here's the truth. I'd rather deal with opposition from a culture that doesn't follow Jesus than suffer the pain and the suffering and the regret that choosing to sin or to live a life that isn't bold will lead to and miss the blessing of obedience. In Hebrews eleven twenty four, 24, it says this. It says, by faith Moses, when he, when he was grown up, hear this, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So I don't want you to miss this. Paul's kicked out of the synagogue. He's teaching in a Gentile hall, and I love verse 10 in Acts 19. It says this, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. The opposition that Paul faced, the fact that he had to leave the synagogue and find another place, all of that opposition, if you were to look at it from 30,000 feet, God's using it to greater spread the gospel. The gospel is prevailing. He's not just talking to a Jewish audience, he's talking to Jews and Greeks, and the gospel spreads throughout Asia Minor. Often God will use opposition to accomplish his purposes. And just one more point. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're saying, wow, that guy's a little bit intense for January 2nd. And he's talking about things that I'm really not experiencing. I I don't feel a lot of opposition for my life, particularly for my faith. Because I look back over 2021 or 2022, I'm not seeing some great transformation in my life. And quite honestly, if I look at my goals, my ambitions. Jesus isn't really central to all of this. Maybe if that's you this morning, I'd ask you to consider one more thing. When the gospel is prevailing, here's the fourth thing. Our faith is our own. Our faith is our own. So when we were starting the church back in 2010, we were part of a fellowship of churches. About 125 of these churches existed at the time through Canada and the U.S. and some overseas Called Harvest Bible Fellowship, and the pastors that were going to plant under Harvest Bible Fellowship, they, they they would train, they would be given instruction in Chicago. Some of them were in residency for nine months, some of them six months. Uh, Cal, Chris, and I, kind of the founding pastors, we went down. We were in residency for three and a half days. That created conflict. The other guys were like, "Why did they get to be here only for only three and a half days? Why? Why in the world didn't they have to say nine months like we did?" And when we left our three and a half days of training, we were given a pile of, of playbooks uh, of what you need to do to be successful in planting a church. So there was the worship playbook. There was the senior, pastor wa- senior pastor's wife playbook. Mary, have you read this? You can come get that from me later. There was the assimilation playbook. There was the coaching playbook. There was the preaching playbook. They didn't even bind that one for us. We just got a stapled copy. There was the launch playbook. All of those books contain some really good information, some really practical advice and considerations as you're planting a church. They have value. Here's the problem. You don't plant a church by running another church's place. just doesn't work. And as I look back 10-12 years, thinking about those 125 or 150 pastors and churches, the fellowship's dissolved, it no longer exists. I think I can safely say that somewhere between a third and a half of those pastors are no longer in ministry. Many or dozens of those churches don't even exist anymore. It's dangerous to try to run somebody else's play. And that's true of us personally as well. There's, there's a lot of reasons that you might want to look as a, like a Christian. Maybe it just makes things easier in your marriage. Maybe you're just avoiding conflict. This is important to your spouse so you come along. Maybe this is just part of your routine. It's what you've grown used to. Maybe it makes you feel better about yourself. Maybe it helps you alleviate some guilt and shame. I don't. There's a lot of reasons that people go through the motions of being a follower of Jesus? Be careful, it's dangerous. Look at verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Again, extraordinary miracles accompanying the advancement of the gospel. Please note, it says that evil spirits came out of them. Spiritual, the, 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 the opposition isn't always just horizontal with other people. There's a spiritual element to the opposition as well. We'll get into that when we get to Ephesians 6. It says in verse 13, then some of the interant, itinerant Jewish exorcists, I don't even know what to do with those three words. Itinerant Jewish exorcists. Apparently there were guys that were traveling around casting out demons. Maybe they were doing it for financial gain. Maybe they were doing it to help people. I don't know their motives. But there were these guys casting out demons. It gives you an idea how big this problem was. But these itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to evoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the name of Jesus whom Paul proclaims. They were just imitating Paul. Verse 14, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. Verse 15, but an evil spirit answered them, I like this, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Verse 16, and the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered them all and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Crazy story made me think of the first time I ever got in a fight. I was nine, ten years old. I went to a football game at our local high school, Lake Park High School, and when I left the house, my mom said, not my wife, I was young, but my, my mom said, hey, don't lose your hat. They got me a Chicago Bears hat. It was cold out, I was wearing this hat. I'm like, no problem. I went to go home from the game, I didn't have my hat. It's a problem, I'm gonna get in trouble. I saw another kid wearing what I thought was my hat. To this day, I don't know if he had a similar hat or it was my hat. The details are sketchy. But I thought I could take him. I was 10, he was 4. I thought I had a shot. No, I'm teasing. He was about my age, okay? So, so accusations were made. I said, "Hey, you stole my hat." We began to argue, pushes, shoves, whatever. I don't remember exactly what happens. Here's the only detail I remember. I know that I threw a punch. And I know that I ran. But when I ran, I had the hat. (laughs) I'm going to say I won the fight. Now in Acts, there's a fight between a man who is demon-oppressed and seven sons of the high priest Sceva, and there's not a victor declared. I'm just going to make the argument that if you leave the fight running, wounded, and the other guy has all your clothes, you're probably the loser. Would you agree? i telling you what, man, it's dangerous to claim a faith that isn't your own. It's dangerous to be an imposter. And that's not just true 2,000 years ago in Ephesus. Matthew 7, 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Those are some of the scariest verses in the New Testament. People are going through the motions. They don't have a sincere faith. They are imposters, and they've even deluded themselves. They don't even know. Make sure your faith is your own. So how do we do that? Look at the text. Look at what it says in verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And in the name of the Lord, or I'm sorry, in the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. It was lifted up, verse 18. And many of those who were, no, who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. You want to make sure that you're a follower of Jesus Christ? Here's your first indication. Are you dragging sin into the light? Are you dealing with your sin? If the Holy Spirit is convicting you of a pattern of behavior or a pattern of thinking in your life that is sinful, what are you doing about it? Are you covering it up? Or are you wearing a mask? Or are you dragging it into the light so that it can be killed? True followers, those that aren't imposters, they deal with their sin, they drag it into the light. And then here's the second thing, verse 19. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it became It came to be 50,000 pieces of silver. You want to be sure that you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that your faith is your own? Are you dragging sin into the light? And then here's the second thing. Has Jesus become most treasured? Right back to the first point. Is Jesus central? Acts 19.20, so the word of the Lord, because of this, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. That's what we pray for. That's what we desire to see in our church and in our community. And when the Holy Spirit is transforming lives, it'll be because we've kept Jesus central. We've been willing to endure opposition. And our faith is real. It is our own. Let me close with this. In John chapter 6, Jesus is teaching some hard things to his followers, to his disciples. And because of the hard things that Jesus is teaching, guess what happens? Conflict. He has opposition. We're told that many of the people that were following him drift away. And we read in John 6, it says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And Jesus turned and said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? you have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. If you're gonna be a follower of Jesus Christ, please understand, it's going to lead to opposition, it's going to lead to some conflict. I don't have to just say that might happen, I can promise you it will happen because Jesus said that. But please consider the alternative. Are you going to turn away because of conflict and opposition and not follow the Lord Jesus? Where are you going to go? To whom else are you going to turn? Who else is going to get you home? Choose who you're going to follow. Jesus is worth it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this text. And even as we get into the book of Ephesians, Let us not forget that the church there faced opposition, faced persecution. But man, your word prevailed. The fact that 2,000 years ago we can study the truth that was proclaimed in that city 2,000 years ago, Father, your word wins. We just declare it. Father, teach us to be bold. Teach us to be faithful. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.